uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, this morning, we just thank you that uh, we, your people, could be together. And Lord, we just, again, want to invite you into this time. Lord, we pray that Christ would be at the center. Jesus, that you'd be glorified and honored in your church. That, uh, Lord, you would be head over all here. Jesus, you're, you're the shepherd here, the great shepherd. And so, Lord, we just ask you that you would teach us this morning, that you would reveal truth to us from your word, Lord, that you would challenge us, that uh, your Holy Spirit would just lead and guide and direct uh, this conversation and teaching this morning, Lord. We ask for, I ask, Lord, for his power and unction and authority as we teach, Lord. We pray that it would be that there would be a demonstration of your spirit's power as the word of God is taught this morning. And so, God, we just give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right on. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And as we come to chapter 5 here, and one of the things that I've been talking about lots as we launch into each one of these messages is that um, 1 Timothy is a letter that addresses um, the practical ways the gospel should affect the lives of followers of Christ and affect the workings of the church. And so, you know, this particular chapter is going to talk about some of that, that very stuff, how uh, certain groups within the church uh, should be shaped by the gospel. Uh, it was Valentine's Day on Friday. Did, I hope you got to do something for Valentine's, did you? Uh, we, Lisa and I took advantage of, we now have a 12 year old babysitter in our house, which is awesome. So we took advantage of that and we, we decided we had family commitments on Friday night. So we decided that we'd do something on Thursday. And so the two of us went out for a nice romantic dinner and, uh, got a romantic fix. I hope you got your romantic fix this week. And the reason why I said that is this, is that as we turn to Timoth first Timothy chapter five, nothing romantic in this passage. Nothing, nothing, you know, I read this one and, you know, it's just nothing, there's nothing romantic. Paul is writing to Timothy about realistic, nitty gritty, rubber meet the road kind of practical issues within the body of Christ and with Timothy as he leads the church. Actually, that reminds me, I, I read a Valentine's joke this week. I, I thought it was a pretty good one, so I thought I'd just share it with you. Why do watermelons always get married in a church? Because they can't elope. Oh. <laughs> uh. Okay, so Timothy's going to talk. He's gonna, Timothy's going to get this lesson from Paul on just some, just some practical things within the church. He says this in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, we've already seen in this letter, one of the things that that's been coming out a little bit is this, is that uh, there is a similarity between the church and the family. It's like the church is a bigger version of your little household. And in our dealings with one another, as the gospel is shaping our lives within the family of God, within the body of Christ, we should treat one another like family members here. You know, so firstly, an older man. Now, I think, you know, probably this is particularly good advice to a, a young pastor like Timothy. He's a young man. You know, I, was, I just think, you know, often the zeal of youth has this tendency to think that you, you have all the answers. I mean, if you were young once, you know that. I, sometimes I think, boy, you know, I should, I should call myself back, you know, 
to my first or second year of when I was doing my theological training to get some advice once in a while because I really knew everything back then. But you know, as you, as you mature and grow, you realize, man, as you grow in Christ, I don't, I don't really have all the answers. I don't know everything. And so this warning to Timothy is this, don't rebuke an older man. Now the word rebuke there, it's, a, it's actually a super strong word. It's the only place it's used in the entire New Testament. It actually means this, don't strike out at him. Don't give him a verbal uh, lashing. It reminds me of what it says in the Old Testament, you know, where in Exodus chapter 21, verse 15, where it says, a son who strikes out at his father should be put to death. And so a verbal lashing of an older man in the church is not appropriate. Now that doesn't mean there isn't a place for correction. It doesn't mean there's, isn't a place for rebuke, but the goal of the correction is always restorative and it should be, it shouldn't be done in an overly harsh manner. What's the, what's the proper attitude? Timothy, Paul tells him, you, you treat older men as you would your father. Okay. You know, I, th- I think of Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verse 32, that says this, you should stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an older man. You shall fear the Lord God. I am the Lord. See, honoring someone who is older is rooted in the fear of God, rooted in the fear of the Lord. And so, you know, where the elderly are not honored, I would say there you find a lack of the fear of God. He says this, be an encour- treat older men in the church like you would your own father. You, you be an encourager to those men. He says, treat younger men as brothers. Uh, you know, I've just had the, the privilege of having my two brothers here visiting from Ontario. I've had the privilege of having my brother-in-law, Ben, back around from Indonesia. And, you know, uh, we, we had so much fun together. And I got to particularly spend a lot of time with my younger brother, Nathan. And, you know, obviously as brothers, you, you uh, I was thinking just about the dynamics of our relationship as I was reading this text. You know, obviously as brothers, we love one another. Uh, but I don't treat my brother with the same humble submission that I would, and respect that I would give to an older man. Okay, between brothers, there's a little bit of friendly this. There's a little bit of friendly that. But you know, there's a, there's a real level of beautiful uh, comfort where I don't have to harbor pretense. I don't need to be, pretend to be something that I'm not. You know, there's just this unapologetic ability to be comfortable in your own skin uh, with a brother because, you know, they're not, they know who you are. You know, you grew up together. They, they, they know it all. And it's not going to change the fact that you're brothers, your blood, right? And so with a younger man, he says, you know, be yourself, treat him like a brother, playfully lip him off, you know? Give him that headlock and a noogie, whatever it is. You know, and I was just, I was thinking, I, you know, I got some really wonderful guy friends in this church that um, I'm so thankful. Some, some of my closest friends. But, you know, I would say this, besides, besides my wife, Lisa, my relationship to my brother Nathan is like maybe the most comfortable place that I have to just be myself. And, you know, that's the idea, I think, that Paul is saying to Timothy, be comfortable with one another. Love one another. Uh, be yourself. Treat younger men just, just like brothers. You don't need to be, have, be full of pretense. He says old, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and all, 
in all purity. You know, the fact that Paul is writing uh, to a man, Timothy, uh, a young pastor, I think I, I would be remiss to point out the fact that we should be careful with how we deal with the other sex. You know, there are too many stories of damage done to the churches because, you know, leaders have wrecked their ministry by, you know, making stupid decisions and sinning in this area. You know, if we, from Timothy, all that we know about him is he was a young man. As far as we know, he wasn't married. And Paul is giving him here a healthy formula for dealing with women. Treat older ladies like your mother. Respect them and give them the honor that is due their age. Treat younger women like sisters with purity. You know, act in a manner above reproach. I'm reminded of what Job said. Good advice. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze upon a virgin? In fact, uh, I I actually think that there's an accountability software that's taken the name from that verse. It's called Covenant Eyes that you could put on your computer and stuff. Look, Job had a game plan in his life for practicing purity with women. He made a covenant with his eyes. And Paul says, Timothy, you treat older ladies like mothers. You treat younger women like your sisters. So here you are, the church, a family. You know what they say about family? Right? You can choose your friends, but you're stuck with your family, right? And so, you know, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. And this is a spiritual family right here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're, we're stuck with one another. And the gospel is shaping us as we learn to love one another. And, you know, no family is perfect. You realize that about your family and about my family? No family is perfect. You know, I could tell you stories about my extended family or about my wife's extended family, and it wouldn't be long, and I'd get to tell you some stories of great dysfunction, fighting, this, that, because no family's perfect. But you know what? The thing about family is this. You know what holds a family together in the midst of dysfunction when there's fighting? is love. It's love for one another. See, uh, blood is thicker than water. Because you love one another, even in the midst of where things aren't perfect. And here we are. We're a church family, but we're called to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, in the days of the early church, right when you get into the early part of the book of Acts and the first uh, part of the story of the church in Acts chapter 6, one of the first problems that they faced in the church was the distribution of food, looking after the poor, and the looking after of those uh, who were widows. Acts chapter 6 tells us that there was actually divisions that rose within the church between the Jews and between uh, the Greek widows. And you say, really, like, What's the story? What's, what's going on there? What's the background? Well, you got you to remember that back in these days, you got no social securities. There's no Canada pension. There's no RSPs. There's no retirement plans. There's no EI retraining. There's no old age security. You know, if, if you were to think of our society and you were just to remove the social securities that we have in Canada, thank God for them, we'd be living in a very different culture and there would be many elderly people that were living in financial dire straits. And so just imagine Canada with social securities gone. That's the era into which the church was born. There were elderly people, particularly widows, with no source of income or way to make a living. 
Now, in the Old Testament, there were very specific instructions, you know, all over the place in the Old Testament, how the people of Israel were to care for widows and to look after them. But now you've got this new thing going on. It's a church. There's a mixture of Jew and Gentile. There's Greeks in there. There's Ro- and it's just a, a whole mixed bag. And the question is, okay, well, now what do we do? How do we care for widows? And so Paul's going to talk quite a bit here about honoring widows. Let's check it out. Verse 3. He says this. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul's instruction is this, honor widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, it's their responsibility, not the responsibility of the church to care for that woman. Now, because, you know, Paul spends a bit of time on this issue, it's, it's kind of shocking that he spends this much time talking about it. So, you know, we have to read between the lines here as we go through this. Obviously, there was a problem in this culture. Obviously, there was a problem in Ephesus. You know, there, there must have been those that were in, within the church even who said, you know, dad's gone, mom's all alone, but the church is there. They'll do the work. They'll pick up the slack. They'll look after mom. But Paul says, no way. That's not cool. Show some godliness in your own household And look after the older members of your family. Look after the older members of your family who are in need, especially your mother, a widow. So, you know, um, maybe I stand corrected. There was social security. It was called the family. It was called the family. You know, moms were to receive a return on the investment they made in their children. And it's pleasing in God's sight, Paul says. And so in regards to the church caring for widows, the first distinction between widows that the church should care for or not care for is this. Do they have children and grandchildren who aren't pulling the slack that should be caring for them? Now, a widow with a family to care for her is a, or a woman with, a widow without a family to care for her is is a woman who's truly in a desolate situation, if you think about it. She is a woman in serious need. And, and being a follower of Christ, uh, a person whose life is being shaped by the gospel, and someone who's all alone, who has their hopes set on Christ, what do you think that woman's life will become as she's in that situation? It, her life will become an altar of prayer. In, in need, she'll begin to cry out to the Lord. Paul says, day and night. Why? Because she needs God to supply There is no other supply for her. She needs God to supply. And so day and night, she will be in the place of prayer, asking God for supplication. You know, I think about that. A a woman like that, she prays for herself, you know. She prays for her church. 
I think a woman like that prays for her pastor. She prays for the salvation of her neighbors. She begins to pray that God would supply all around her where she has needs, where she sees needs, because she doesn't have the ability to meet them. And Paul says, Timothy, look, when you find a widow like that, Timothy, the church should step up and be the answer to prayer. The church should step up and supply. But he says in verse 6, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now, if you go over to her house and it's, you know, like a cocktail party happening and she's living for pleasure and doing this and doing that and going through the motions of life, then, then she's probably not the sort of woman that you need to step up and really help. And so in verse 7, he says, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know, at different times throughout 1 Timothy, I pointed out the military language that's there. And again, there it is. Timothy, command these things. In other words, make this very clear in the order of the church so that people would know how to act in an honorable way before the Lord in regards to such matters. You know, verse 8 is a strong verse, isn't it? But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, what Paul is saying is this. Work and provision for your family, that's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual issue that is of utmost importance. And failure to live out the gospel in work and in provision is actually a denial of the faith. That's what he says. You know, 1 Timothy, like I said, I've been saying for weeks, is, is, is a book that is about gospel-shaped living, rubber-meeting-the-road kind of Christianity. And he says, failure to provide for your family is a failure to live out the gospel. That's what he's saying. And so in the context, you know, this particularly applies to the caring of elderly people with the caring for of elderly people within your family. You know, I was thinking about it just over, over the years, even recently within our church. I've watched so many of you step up and take care of aging parents. I, I mean, I could go, I, literally names are flying through my mind as I think about it. I could go around the room and point out different people that have just stepped up in various ways to rush to a parent's aid, to send financial aid, to do different things, to help parents, maybe to bring them right into their home. And, and as I was considering this text, I, I was thinking about many of you guys have come to mind. And you know, I'd like to tell you this, that in doing so, you've honored the Lord. You've shown that the gospel is being applied and, and brought in to the heart of your life. You, you've demonstrated the fear of God as you have honored your parents and sought to help them as they age. I, I was thinking about uh, Pastor Jack from Calvary Baptist up the road. You know, for two, three days a week right now, he's been having to go into the city and help move his mom into a home. She spent her entire life on one block in Vancouver. Two doors down from the house that she grew up in, she moved with her husband. Her whole life, he's helping. It's godly. It's honorable. It's, it's a demonstration of the gospel in your lives. 
And so Paul says, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he's denied the faith. And it's, it's, you know, it's worse than that of an unbeliever. This is serious business. He goes on. Verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has been brought up, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. As you read that, apparently, the church even had a list of widows that qualified. A little bit different than, you know, how, we, how we've done things. But he gives some different, just some different qualification factors. She shouldn't be less than 60 years old. She should have been a faithful wife and a good mother, hospitable, cared for the hurting, refreshed the saints, but she has no family to care for her. And so you church, step up and help her, care for her. He says in verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, a younger widow means someone who's been married once already is more than likely to remarry and going to want to marry. And, you know, you might read this and think that Paul was against the young widow getting married, but that is not the case. Not at all. But the, what, what he's saying here is it's a warning to young widows that they allow their passions to draw them away from Christ. He's not forbidding uh, them getting married. He's forbidding them getting married for the wrong reasons. And so he says, leave them off the list of, of widows because they're going to want to remarry. You know, they may be con- professing faith to Christ, but the danger for them is, is that they set that aside and they follow their passion and make a decision to, to put their passions ahead of faith, put their passions ahead of Christ. Look, it's good to be married. The scripture tells us that it's not good that man should be alone. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul was aware of that. And, and the likelihood is that someone who is young and finds himself widowed is going to want to remarry. And that that's good. Now, one of the ways, though, that a person who is in that position can be tempted to turn from faith is in marrying a non-believer and making a poor decision because they're choosing to follow their path. Christ just gets knocked down a notch and they make a choice to follow their their passion. Maybe they make a decision to marry a non-believer. The scripture is very clear on that issue. When you make that that choice, you're choosing your passion over Christ. Now, that might might sound harsh to you. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I've seen it too many times to say, I know why Paul is saying this. You know, I would say to you this, missionary dating is a bad idea. It's always a bad idea. And, you know, you you could point to one story that turns out great. But at the same time, I could point you to 10 that went the other way. God knows your needs. And what Paul's warning of is this. You put Christ first. You put faith first. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He'll take care of the rest. That's what, his, that's what God's promise is. And you could say, yeah, yeah, but you know, I, I, you don't know what it's like to be single. 
You're right, I don't. But I know what God's word says. And I'll trust his word over your experience. And I would encourage you, trust his word. You seek him first. You put Christ first and Christ will provide for you. He'll bring you a spouse. He'll bring you a godly marriage partner. And so Paul's warning is this. Man, be cautious, young widows, that passion doesn't come first before Christ. He says in verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. You know, having the church support you as a young widow would be really nice because then you don't have to have responsibility. That's what he's saying. I mean, the finances are rolling. I don't have a husband to take care of. I don't have to look after kids. I don't have a house to manage. I could just wander around and visit people and, you know, and the, the danger there and what he's warning of is, is that you just become a busybody. The translation is actually this. It's of a horse where you take the bit out of the horse's mouth. No more bridle. Free to roam. Free to do its thing. And it's not healthy. Idle hands lead to gossip. You know, poking your heads into other people's lives. You become a busybody. Uh, you, you know, so he says in verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So he says, look, make sure these women don't, Give the enemy an opportunity to speak negatively about the body of Christ and about those, the community of Christians because they're neglecting their house or neglecting their own lives. Look, Paul here, you see it. He's totally pro-marriage, totally pro-family, totally pro-childbearing, uh, pro-women managing the household rather than being idle. You know, I, I, I was, as I'm thinking about this, you know, I was thinking, you know, Sometimes I just wonder about this world where I'm raising my kids, you know? I fear for my kids. Don't you fear for your kids at different times? Then I think, I think down the road and I think when I have grandchildren, what kind of world will this nation be of ours when I'm raising my grandkids? You know, I, I think of, it, it seems like, can it, you know, our culture, the bits come out of the mouth of the horse and it's becoming unbridled and, there's things that just seem crazy. And, you know, fear could actually stop you from having children. But faith bears children. Faith is fruitful. Faith in God multiplies. And when it comes to the raising of children, don't let your life be gripped by fear. You know, the culture of Paul's day was far more pagan and idolatrous and worshiping many gods in our own culture. You know, Ephesus was a sexually charged city out of control. More charged than the culture than which we live, which is hard to believe. But it was up front and in your face in that culture too. And so Paul's instruction is this, you know, bear children, marry and bear kids. You know, raise them in the way they should go, and in the end, they'll not depart from it. 
See, having a family and giving birth to children is the fruit of faith. And so why, I would say this, why live in fear regarding the gifts that God gave you? You know that my children are gifts from God. God cares about them more than I care about them. Uh, They're his children before they're my children. And if you love Jesus, then know this. Jesus loves your kids. Before they're yours, they're his. And so you walk in faith before the Lord as you raise them, not in fear. And so he says, bear kids, man. Have a family. Fill your house. Manage it. Do it well. You by yourself, get married and have a family. It's godly. It's good. And so again, Paul wraps up these thoughts by repeating that, it, that if a widow has relatives, let her learn to, to care. If a widow has relatives, then, then she should even care for her own family. So that the church is not overly burdened and can care for those who really need it. Now he begins to switch gears. And he talks about he's honoring widows, now honoring elders. It says in verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, elders here speak of those who lead the church. There's two types of elders in view. And I mention this because we really have these two types of elders functioning in our church too. There are elders who rule over the church, providing leadership and various function. There are elders who also preach and teach within our church. And, and that's what the picture is in view here. And he says, they, they labor in preaching and teaching. And when it says they should, that if they do well, they should be considered worthy of double honor. It it simply means the church should be generous financially in their support of those who preach and teach. It's like Paul says, oh yeah, well, I'm talking about widows and church finances. It's good that we talk about this whole thing. That reminds me, pay your elders. Uh, He says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's a good picture, eh? You just think of your pastor like an ox. But I'm reminded, when we went through 1 Timothy a couple years back on Wednesday nights, Al actually taught through this text and he talked about an ox. I'd never seen an ox before until a few years back. Uh, One time we were in the city, we took the kids to a, a pumpkin patch and a corn maze and they had all these farm animals and here was this ox and the thing was like... Its back must have stood that tall. I'm not kidding. I never, I didn't know they were such beasts. It's a beast of burden. Can pull some weight. Knows how to do some work. And Paul says, uh, or the instruction of the Old Testament was this. While the ox is treading the grain, you let him eat. He gets, gets of the rewards of their labor. Receive the benefits of his work. Jesus said the laborer deserves his wages. Verse 19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul's instruction right away is this. Don't slander. Don't listen to the slander of a spiritual leader. You know, I uh, have lots of stories that come to mind. When we were uh, first doing youth ministry in the city and knew at a church, I was probably like, 23 years old. Lisa and I had been married for a little over a year and uh, we were getting established in this church part-time 
doing the youth work, leading the youth group. And, and um, a month in or so, we get invited over to one of the prominent families in the church uh, to their home for dinner. And we sit down and we have dinner. And after dinner, we sit down in the living room. And uh, the conversation begins to turn to the pastor. And um, in this instance, it, it was the wife. She began to just say things about the pastor and begin to just put some seed in front of me to see if I would take it and bite it. And, and it, it was not good. And so I stopped the conversation and I said, you know, I, I'm not comfortable with this conversation. That's my pastor. He's the man of God. I don't want any part of your discussion. And, um, you know, our relationship kind of deteriorated from there. But there was quick backtracking right there. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I'm not trying to slander or this or that. And within a month or two, they had tried to pull a coup on the pastor and they left the church and he survived, thank goodness, because he was a godly man. You know, Paul says this, you don't admit a charge against an elder. You know, charges come against elder. You know why charges come against elder? Because when you're in a place of leadership, one of the instructions that Timothy's been, been given is, and, and we're going to see it further down the road, is to rebuke and correct and to teach and to train in righteousness. And sometimes elders bring correction. Sometimes they bring rebuke. And when you do that, you sometimes accumulate enemies. And so great caution should be used when someone brings slander against an elder. You know, the best way to curb that stuff and to stop it is to just stop the conversation. To say, I'm not listening to this. I'm not interested. See, gossip goes nowhere when you actually stop it. You know, I'm reminded of a, another story where uh, an individual was writing threatening letters that could be perceived as threatening. There was double meanings in there to a pastor. And uh, he had brought some correction and rebuke and actually stood up to an individual probably for the first time in their life. And so in their scramble, they began to threaten and they brought accusations against this elder. And so I got involved uh, to help out. And um, they were, yeah, I would say they were just mad because they faced some correction and it was done in a good way, but they brought accusation. And so finally it got to the point where it was like, look, you stop contacting this pastor, and if you contact him again, we're going to hand it over to the RCMP. The scripture says not to entertain it unless there's two or three witnesses, and you have no witnesses. What you're saying is out of thin air. It has no value. Goodbye. Leave this man alone. And we laid it down, and it backed off. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the... See, it's serious business. Serious business. He says this, on the other hand, as for those who persist in sin, if you do find sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand on fear. So on the other hand, you know, if there's a legitimate charge against an elder and they're persisting in sin, you rebuke them, you correct them, and you do it publicly so that, that all are to stand in awe of God. He says in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, pretty serious, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging. 
doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Pure. Uh, Paul's warning to Timothy is this. Look, Timothy, you don't get to pick your favorites in ministry. You know, don't too quickly lay your hands on someone and put them in the place of leadership. You know, I've made both those mistakes. You know, God does not approve of partiality. You see it all throughout the scripture. Uneven balances and weights and scales. God detests. He doesn't play favorites. And the warning here is that we take part part in the sin of others. When we show partiality or hastiness, when we lay hands on them, and then the situation begins to go south, well then we are actually participating in what went wrong. We helped it happen. And so he says, take your time. Don't play favorites. There's this picture of uh, laying on of hands. You remember Timothy, the elders laid hands on him and they prophesied over him. They sent him out. He said, take your time in that process. Keep yourself pure, Timothy. You know, Timothy was, you know, called to lead, to observe, to assess, to to rebuke, correct, to teach, to train in righteousness, it was even more important that he himself look after the own, in, the, his own in, integrity of heart. Pay attention to his life. Verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for, your, for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Okay, so use, use a little wine for your stomach, Timothy. Now, you know, we, we're blessed, you know. Here we are. We live in Canada. We live in Gibson's. Best drinking water in the world. But one of the things going on in those cultures and in those days was water was, was not pure. Timothy had ailments. It says that. He had frequent ailments. The guy had stomach issues. He had something going on. And, you know, that process of fermentation and making wine kills a lot of harmful things in the water. Paul says, Timothy, it's good for you to have a little bit once in a while. It's, it's good for your tummy, man. Use a little wine. Now, Timothy, I imagine as a, as a young pastor, as a guy, um, you know, learning to lead the church and growing in that role was probably abstaining from alcohol uh, for the sake of setting a good example. And that's a good thing. That's a, that's a godly thing. How in it, however, we get this sense that in, in his abstinence from alcohol, from wine, he was actually hurting himself. Paul said it would do him a little good. Uh, you know, don't sacrifice your health, Paul's saying, for the, some issue of abstinence that you're seeking to prove and fight for. You know, you do a little, you do better for the Lord if you take care of your body, man. So take a little medicine, Timothy. Have a little wine for your stomach, you know. And like I said, Timothy was, you know, just this victim of tummy problems, frequent infirmities, ailments. But Paul doesn't send him a hanky. Here's my hanky, man. Be blessed. Here's some holy water. He tells him, take some medicine, man. And you know, for that matter, God's given us medicine. He's given us the blessing of that, you know. Besides something like wine for the stomach, there's other great pharmaceutical products that help you out when you're sick. It's some of that stuff's okay. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, the Lord's always going to heal us or whatever. And that wasn't the case for Timothy. And so Timothy, 
Here's a prescription for some medicine. Have some wine for your stomach. Verse 24, wrap it up here. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. Even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Like, you know, when you, when you as Timothy was called to do, raise up leaders and to assess people's uh, lives and, and to choose those who were to lead the church, you know, sometimes sin is clearly evident and can be clearly seen. But sin in some people's life, it's just they're really good at hiding it. And so it's tucked away and it's, and it, and it's hidden. And I would say, look, the reality is we all have areas in our life that God is still dealing with, that he's still working on. And sometimes those areas that God is working in my life or in your life is really clearly evident to other people. They can see it and they go, yeah, look at Matt or whoever. But sometimes it's not evident. Sometimes uh, people are regarded as holy just because they're really good at hiding their stuff. And Paul says, it'll, it'll come out, so take your time. Uh, the good works will come out too. The good works will eventually be revealed. You know, sometimes sin, sin is hidden. It'll come out and you can judge it. Uh, sometimes the good works are hidden and they'll reveal themselves too. And so, take your time, Timothy. Get a slow, you know, accurate picture of what's going on in that person's life and wait for God for discernment before you lay hands on someone and choose an elder. So a chapter, just real practical stuff, isn't it? Looking after parents, having families, how to treat one another within the body of Christ, how to deal with leadership. Simple, simple stuff, but good practical stuff. And so uh, let's thank God for his word. I'm going to invite Mary and Beth to come and to join us and close us off in a song this morning. Why don't you guys stand with me and we will... Uh, say a word of prayer.